I'm going to read uh, Mark 13, 1 to 13. It won't be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, just listen to the reading of God's Word. He's instructed us in His Word to not ignore the public reading of Scripture. So we're going to read God's Word together. Mark 13, uh, verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, and as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. I know you're tempted to keep reading. We want to find out what happens next, and that's the way we've been designed by God. We want to know what happens next. Some of you like to read the end of a book before you finish it. You know who you are. Or you skip to the end of the movie on your Netflix. Just want to know how it ends. I have this compulsion that once I start a book or a movie, I have to finish it no matter how lame it is. I need closure. So I'll skim and, and just kind of get to the end. Jennifer will go to bed and I'll still be watching the end of the movie. You know, Got to stay up. God's given us the end of the story. He's writing his story. And we said last week that all human life has significance because we're created in God's image. But we yearn and search for further significance. We're writing our own story and we want it to have meaning. We said sometimes we in our sinfulness, want to be significant too much. Too much. God's the hero of his story, not us, but we get to play a part. It's a wonderful part. Those who are in Christ get to reign with Christ forever. It's a wonderful part. He does want us to read the end of the book. It's okay. You can find out what happens. It gives you hope. And trust increases your faith. And yet the end of the story is just before the end, scary. Scary. Terrible times. Wars and and judgment like this world has never seen. And this world has seen some pretty ugly stuff. We have these beautiful days and all seems right with the world. And so much can change so fast. Uh, Illness, a natural disaster, a war. All around the world there's suffering and warfare and famine, natural disasters. One day you might be looking forward to a vacation in Indonesia and then an earthquake hits in the middle of the ocean and a tsunami wipes out 100,000 people like that. We live 
in tenuous times at all times. As wonderful as God's common grace is and as beautiful as this planet is, and as there's so much to enjoy and be thankful for, we realize that life is but a vapor. It, it can all change instantly. And man, on the one hand, yearns for an end to all this, especially the wars. There have been no shortage of wars through human history. They've said if there's two things you can count on, it's death and taxes, but war maybe would be a third ever since Cain killed Abel. They just didn't have anyone else around to assemble an army. The reasons men go to war are varied, and, and uh, we can rationalize just about anything. Often it's for power, glory, pride. Sometimes it's the scarcity of resources, so to acquire more land, more resources. Sometimes nations attack their own people. They say, we just got to thin things out so we can re- hit the reset button and have a stronger nation. It's going on in nations all around the globe. Who knows how many die in North Korea every day? We don't, we don't know. It's a terrible regime. In the 90s, it was Rwanda, 800,000 killed in genocide by the machete, mostly. It's terrible what man does to man. I watched Braveheart this weekend just to kind of get myself into, into the whole flow of things. And Gladiator. <laughs> and there was like no shortage of films on, on war and fighting. Those two films in particular are especially bloody. Um, some of the films that leave the blood out almost leave you with the impression that war and fighting is fun and like sport. And yet it's gruesome, it's violent, it's terrible. War is hell. Man says he wants to avoid wars, and every four years, now every two years, man assembles at the Olympics. We hand out peace prizes. We say we want peace, and yet the Olympics aren't even over, and nations are already plotting against those that they just shook hands with. Young men especially are excited about war. They like to read about it, hear about it, see movies about it. God's a warrior. It's okay to have those feelings. He defends the weak. Sometimes there are just causes for wars. We'd like to avoid them if we can, but sometimes they just can't be avoided. Young Jewish boys have known war all through their history. Israel's always been at war. There's no shortage of people who want to see the Jews dead. And there's promises in the Old Testament, promises that one day a Messiah would come and lead the war to end all wars, defeat all of Israel's enemies, put Israel as the top dog, and usher in a time of peace and prosperity for all. These were the stories that they heard growing up. And now a group of young men have found the Messiah, or rather the Messiah found them, called them, chose them. And they want to know, when are these things going to happen? What things? The end. When is Messiah going to assemble his army, defeat Israel's enemies, and bring in the millennial kingdom? the thousand-year reign of peace and prosperity. When's it going to happen? When are we going to fight? Remember, it's Peter who was in the Garden of Gethsemane with the sword lopping off ears. These are young men. They're brash. They're filled with dreams, great hopes of personal glory. They want to sit on Jesus' left and right in His kingdom. They often ignored Jesus' talks about having to die. Maybe they understood it, but they were like, okay, you're going to die, you're going you're to rise again, and then the fighting's going to start. When are you going to assemble your army? You're here, you're in Jerusalem, it's the Passover, everybody's here. Every male in Israel, basically, is here. Now's the time. Tell us, when are these things going to happen? Jesus had just finished his public ministry at the temple. He cleansed the temple. He argued with the religious leaders and won. 
They're leaving the temple. One of the disciples points to the temple and says, wow, look at these great stones. Have you ever seen such a building like this? Jesus is not impressed. He says, the whole, the whole thing is a symbol for corrupt religion, and it's going to come down. It's going down. It took 43 years for Herod to build the temple. It's coming down piece by piece. It's funny, he tells the young man, do you see these great buildings? He just pointed them out to Jesus. Wow, look at these buildings. And pause. Do you see these buildings? Do you really see them? Do you know what they represent? God's not impressed with them. They're coming down. They crossed the Kidron Valley. I don't know if you noticed the last slide when we were singing was a picture of the temple from the view of the Mount of Olives. Great place to, to view the temple. And he's sitting there with Peter and James and John and Andrew. And they're asking him about the end times. What's it going to look like? When's it going to happen? You know, what role are we going to play? Later, they would, they would come down off the Mount of Olives and go to Bethany, where they were staying at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So that's, that's the context. Here's that. It's just Jesus and, and these four young men. I keep saying young men because you have to realize these aren't probably 30-year-olds or 40-year-olds. Most likely, they're in their late teens. Their late teens. Which explains a lot when you think back through New Testament stories. And they're so brash and so... The things that come out of their mouth, you're like, what? What's wrong with these guys? They're teenage boys. That answers everything. <laughs> Sorry, teenage boys. I was one too. It's like your brain just doesn't work right. <laughs> you get fixated on stuff and you can't seem to see the bigger picture. why we enlist young men to go to war. Those are the ones who want to go fight and want to be led and maybe if they really knew what war is like, nobody would be signing up. So side note, if you're pondering their youth here, it was very rare for a Jewish boy not to be married by the time he hit 20. All the apostles except Peter were single. That ought to tell you something about their age. Unless they were all like complete losers and couldn't get a wife. <laughs> One time Peter was asking the Lord how they were going to pay their tax. Every year, every Jewish male had to pay a tax, one denarius. Actually, it was not every Jewish male, it was every male. It was a, it was a Roman tax. Twenty years or older... What did Jesus say? He said, go, go fish. Peter was a fisherman. He catches a fish, looks in his mouth. There's two coins to pay the tax, one for Jesus, one for Peter. The other, one, the other apostles nearby didn't need one. They weren't old enough to pay the tax yet. Peter was the leader, right? Jesus kind of put Peter in charge. He was probably the oldest. That's about all he had going for him. He was brash and outspoken and... Needed wisdom. The other two in Jesus' circle, closest circle, James and John, he called them the sons of thunder. They were loudmouths. They were fighters, brawlers. They once asked, uh, John once asked Jesus as they were passing uh, Samaritan land, shall I call down fire from heaven and destroy the Samaritans? No. <laughs> no. By the end of his apostleship, John was known as the Apostle of Love. What a transformation. John wrote the last of the four Gospels. He probably wrote it in 70 or 80 A.D. He wrote Revelation in 90, somewhere in the 90s we, we gather. He was in exile in salt mines, very harsh conditions. If he was... Uh, Really, really, really old guy. He probably wouldn't have survived. So you got to put John really young when he's a contemporary of Jesus to give him enough time of life to make it to 90 A.D. 
All right, so these are young guys. Now that kind of sets the tone for everything. No wonder they want to know. Just think, young teenage boys sitting on the Mount of Olives. When are we going to fight? When are we going to fight? When are we going to fight? When do we get swords? Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? You know some of the stories that they heard growing up because we, we tell the same stories around Christmas time. Isaiah 9. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. We tend to skip verse 7 in the Christian church because somewhere in history the church saw a different view of Christ's return. They said he's reigning now and this is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. And that the church has replaced Israel. There is no throne of David anymore. We'll talk more about that later, but that's why we generally cut off verse 7 at Christmas time. Zechariah 14, another popular messianic prophecy every young Jewish boy would know. I don't have it on the slide, just, just listen. Point in my eyes, just listen. Which, whichever one does the listening. Behold, a day is coming from the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. Everybody longing for that day, but you see there's got to be a great battle before it. And so since the time of the apostles asking that question on the Mount Halls, every believer has been asking that question. When will these things be? When will these things be? When is it going to happen? We've been asking that question for 2,000 years, and Christians have answered that question from the Bible. The Bible does tell us the story, except it tells it all over the Bible. It's like a great jigsaw puzzle. If you like puzzles, you love to study eschatology. Now, I'm going to be honest, it's not my favorite thing to study. I love theology proper, the, the knowledge of God, the study of God. Christology, the study of Christ. I love soteriology, the study of salvation. I struggle with pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. He's kind of elusive. It's hard to, to figure him out. He's like the wind, right? But I confess that I've really had to buckle down the last two weeks and study my eschatology. It's exciting, but it makes your head explode. There's so many pieces to the puzzle, and really when you make a jigsaw puzzle, you kind of look for the corner pieces, and then the edge pieces, and then you fill in the middle, right? Um, 
Except in this puzzle, like the main pieces right in the very middle are gone. Because Jesus says he doesn't even know the time or the hour when he's going to return. Only the Father knows. So you know you're making a puzzle that when you're done, you're not going to get to see the whole thing. Which is like hard to make a puzzle like that. So you almost have to step back and go big picture and get the box, the box lid. And when you look at the box lid, we do get a complete picture. Jesus is coming back. He is going to gather his church. He is going to defeat all of his enemies. He's going to defeat Satan and Antichrist. There will be a thousand-year reign here on earth. And eventually, he will destroy the heavens and earth and build, create new ones. Paradise lost will be paradise found. He didn't just come to redeem us. He came to redeem all of creation and Lord over all of it. In the meantime, though, we want to know uh, more details some of you love eschatological details. You're, you read the papers, you watch the news, you, you search the internet, you, you read Hal Lindsey, you've read the whole Left Behind series twice. You, you, you like to solve puzzles, that's your thing. You love eschatology. Praise God he gave you something special to study. Others of you are just like, ah, he's coming back, right? Yes, okay, I'm good. That's all I need to know. Then you've got all the people trying to guess the exact date. I don't know why they do this. When Jesus said, I don't even know the exact date. In Jesus' humanity, he didn't take that prerogative on himself. What would you do if you did know the exact date? Would you just loaf around until the day before and then shove all your stuff into the closet and under the bed like you do when company comes over? What would you do? People who don't believe say, okay, on that day I'll believe. You know, I'll, I'll have my fun now. Would you fret and worry if, if, if you knew the date was in your lifetime? Wouldn't you just, I don't know, be paralyzed with, with anxiety? People would probably stop having children just so they wouldn't, you know, be around when that happens. Why do I say that? Because not everyone is pre-trib, which means... Will Jesus gather his church and remove them from this planet before the Great Tribulation, during the Great Tribulation, mid-trib, or after the Great Tribulation, post-trib? There's people, good evangelical believers that we're friends with who believe all three of those positions. Well, not at the same time. <laughs> but if you were a post-tribber, you may not want your children around. In fact, I guarantee you wouldn't want your your, anyone to be around during the Tribulation. It's going to be horrible. The wars that we have seen in the history of mankind will be nothing compared to... That's why it's called the Great Tribulation. Not great as in wonderful. Great as in huge, big, nothing like it. Today I just wanted to introduce you then to what the three major views of eschatology are. Again, there's good and godly people that we uh, love and worship with. They believe Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Son of God. He is God. He died for our sins and rose on the third day, and He reigns. We can all agree on that. Praise God. It's why we're able to, to do things like the walk to Emmaus. Let's get the essentials right. Let's major on the majors. Not that this is a minor doctrine, but one thing we all can agree on, and nobody can deny Jesus is coming back. There will be a second advent. Now, it does matter what you believe in the meantime because it will determine um, kind of how you act, how you evangelize. There's probably uh, pre-mill, on-mill, and post-mill people here this morning. Probably mostly pre-mill. I hope you don't mind if I say I'm pre-mill, pre-trib. Is anyone going to get up and walk out on me? Okay, good. You're all here. We could have a cup of coffee and talk eschatology together. And pre-mill, pre-trib, not because somebody told me to be, but because a normal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, or the way we read the Bible, really tends to point towards pre-mill, pre-trib. You have to do kind of some funny things with, with the Bible hermeneutically to come up with the other positions. So 
Let me walk you through. Today's more of like a little history lesson, seminary class, okay? Sometimes we're teaching, sometimes we're preaching. Today's a little more teachy than preachy. The linchpin here is the millennium. Is there a millennial kingdom or not? Is there a thousand-year kingdom here on earth or not? Whatever your answers to that question is going to depend on the rest of your eschatology. Millennial, from the Latin. In the Greek, it's like keelism. So some people who are premillennial, they'll say they're keelistic. Where do we get this thousand years from? John writes in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So Satan will be bound during that thousand years. Isn't that great? A thousand year reign on earth without having to worry about Satan. However good life is now, it already pales in comparison to the millennial kingdom. No Satan. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. That, that would be great. Until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then we don't get the rest of the story there for a second. There's kind of an aside here. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So, is a thousand years literal or is it figurative? The Bible is filled with metaphors, similes, figurative language, types, but it's also filled with plenty of literal languages. Well, how do you tell the difference? Well, how do you tell the difference when you're reading any book? Context. Thank you, context. You know, when you're little and you're in Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. <laughs> when you take Greek, the answer is always context. And my Greek students know that. They're half asleep. I call on someone. They go, context. <laughs> so, yeah, yes, but that's not what I was looking for. But context. Some see the entire book of Revelation as figurative and some, excuse me, symbolic. If that were the case, then it'd be really hard to figure out anything in the book. Whatever you wanted everything to be, that's what it, what it could be. Certainly God wouldn't give us the end of the story and then make it so uh, mystical and cryptic and um, allegorical that we wouldn't know anything for sure. Why bother? Why bother even telling us if that's the case? Does it seem that the thousand years here is, is figurative? It, it, it doesn't seem so to me. It doesn't seem so to me. It seems quite literal. It's used over and over again. I know there's the passage that with God, one, year is like, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. But in that context, that's just to show us that time doesn't really affect God like it does us. That's not the context here. They're not trying to say that um, a day is like a thousand years. They're saying a thousand years is like a thousand years. It's a thousand years. God created the heavens and earth. He created our solar system. A day is a day because our earth rotates on its axis every 24 hours, and a year is a year. It's a thousand years. That's the way I take it. Now, that doesn't make me the authority on this. Plenty of much smarter men have taken different position. We love and read men like R.C. Sproul who, who aren't pre-mill. They're, they're on-mill. I think he may have changed his position, but I'm not sure. I'm also pre-mill because the early church fathers were pre-mill. 
John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, who wrote Revelation, trained some men, including Papias and Ignatius, and they were both pre-mill. That's got to say something, right? The pre-mill teaching is that Jesus is reigning right now at the right hand of the Father during what's called the church age. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Jesus is building his church through those who are quickened by the Holy Spirit to put their faith in Christ as the Son of God and Savior. Jesus is reigning in the hearts of believers right now. He's reigning in your heart and mine, and if you're a believer, he reigns in your heart. He will return either before, during, or after the seven-year tribulation to gather the church. Jesus talks about the tribulation in the next section of Mark, which we will look at on another Sunday. The part he's talking about is the church age. Everything from the day of Pentecost to when he returns, the church age. After the great tribulation, he'll reign for a thousand years on David's throne because he promised that to Israel, and he doesn't break his promises. And right now, there's plans to rebuild the temple. The dominant view since the 4th century is amillennialism. So what happened in that time between the early church fathers saying pre-mill, 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 and then all of a sudden amillennialism has dominated the landscape basically from uh, around the 300s all the way up to maybe the 16 or even 1700s. That's a long time to be the dominant view. Well, who's been in charge of the church more or less for that time? The Roman Catholic Church. So they're, they're professing the all-mill view. The church, the Roman Catholic Church, is the church, and it reigns for Jesus. Jesus, yes, he reigns on high, but the, that is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. According to their view, this is the kingdom. How do you like it? I sure hope it gets better than this. It's like being told you're going to Disneyland and you end up at Magic Mountain. Like, what? <laughs> I thought we were going to the happiest place on earth. It's hot and the hills. Oh my goodness, the hills. This can't be the kingdom. There's a kingdom in our hearts, but this cannot be the physical, literal kingdom. The Pope can't be in charge of everything. I'm just, I'm not buying it. It doesn't sound anything like what the Bible promised. Where's the end of the wars? Where's the end to the famines and the plagues and the suffering? Where's the peace? So how did this view get popular? I said that if you read the Bible in the normal way you would read any other book, you're going to arrive at a pre-mill position. You have to allegorize or spiritualize the Bible to come up with the all-mill position, especially in Revelation 20. There's a church father named, um, I think it was Clement of Alexandria, I have this on my slide. It's probably on the next. There it is. Clement of Alexandria started interpreting the Bible from a more kind of spiritual sense. Alexandria, right, in, in Egypt. And even today, the, that part of the world, uh, Greek Orthodoxy, the Coptic Church, very mystical, very high church. We call them bells and smells churches. There's a lot of ringing of bells and a lot of incense, a lot of repeating the same thing over and over. Not a lot of Bible study, not a lot of trying to get to the sense and to the meaning of God's Word. His student, Origen, is called the father of allegorical interpretation. This guy was brilliant, but the way he didn't interpret the Bible was, was uh, so personalized that nobody else could come up with the same things he was coming up with. So he'd be like that guy you go to hear preach, and you're like, wow, I would never have seen that in that passage before. 
Like, well, maybe because it's not there. It's that kind of, kind of sermon where you go home and you, or come back from a conference and you go, oh, the speaker was amazing. Well, what did he say? I don't know. But it was amazing. My eyes were opened. That's okay when you say that when an expositor is showing you through clear, logical argumentation, using Scripture to back up Scripture, and you go, oh, yeah, huh, that's what it says. I learned something new today. That's what we hope to do from the pulpit each Sunday or in your ABF or your Bible study classes. But not sit around and come up with novel and uh, far-out interpretations of the Bible. As we always say... It's not what the Bible means to you. The Bible means what it means. It means what God means. And then the application is what that means to you. So what Origen was doing became popular. And then along comes Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say it, tomato, tomato. And Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now everybody's a Christian. No threat of persecution anymore. And Augustine wrote, you know, the, the city on a hill, and, and the Roman Catholic Church was going to spread across the continent and bring the gospel to everybody and create a Christian kingdom here on earth. And Jesus will reign by proxy through his pope and his priests. That's the view of amillennialism. And we don't call 300 A.D. all the way up to the Reformation, the Dark Ages, for nothing. You know, it, was a, it, was, it was a very dark time. At one point, the plague hit and wiped out a third of the world's population. So, again, if this is the kingdom, it's, it's sure not like the one we read about from Isaiah or Zechariah. And where are the Jews in all this? Did God just forget about them? Well, the Amil position says that because of repeated disobedience, breaking covenant with God, the Abrahamic covenant was nullified by God and God replaced Israel with the church. It's called replacement theology. And because of the Jews being scattered around the planet and because of the great persecution that they've endured, many Christians have said that is proof that they lost, they lost out on the promises. The church replaced Israel. And you'll notice in the Roman Catholic Church that a lot of the trappings of Jewish religion exist. There's an altar. There's priests. They call the area around the altar the Holy of Holies. Only the priest is allowed behind the altar. The priest says the Mass, and during the Mass they say he's pulling Jesus Christ down off of his throne and slaying him on the altar. And the, the bread and the wine become the body and blood, actual body and blood, of Christ, that the priest has that kind of authority. Just like the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Along came the Reformers, right? Luther and Calvin, Zwingli. Luther wanted to reform the church and not replace the church. And the Reformation had to do with soteriology, salvation, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone. They weren't there to reform the eschatology of the church. All the Reformers hung on to the Amil position, interestingly, which is strange because, to me, sola scriptura, they went back to reading the Bible, interpreting it in a literal sense. Literal, where the Bible's literal. Symbolic, where it's symbolic. And yet, they didn't change their eschatology. It's really strange. And part of the reason why was because there was great anti-Semitism in the church, sadly. I mean, the church is glorious. It's the bride of Christ, but we've done so much to put a black eye on the bride, haven't we? The church has some real embarrassing moments through history, and the anti-Semitism is one of the worst Luther had horrible things to say about Jews. Embarrassing. I don't even want to repeat them from the pulpit. Luther wanted to remove some of the New Testament books from the canon that were too Jewish, including the book of James. He called it the Epistle of Straw. I don't know if you knew Luther had kind of a potty mouth. 
the dirty jokes and um, real pejorative ways of talking about Rome and, and the Pope. He once called the Pope the yawning anus of Rome. And he would draw pictures and make flyers and circulate them. I guess sometimes it takes that kind of person to wake people up. But he's not somebody that you'd want shepherding the flock. One picture of the Pope's face on the back of a donkey. He said, if God can speak through a talking ass, then I guess he can speak through the Pope. Oof. He was once asked by his students where all the pigs went after the demons were cast out of the garrison demoniac and into the pigs and they went in the water. He said they all swam to Rome. He was, no, he was no fan of the church, but he just wanted to reform it, not replace it. So I'm sorry to say a lot of the reformers were anti-Semitic. They, they hated the Jews. They found them hard to be around, for lack of a better term. Wherever the Jews went, they, were, they could never get a job anywhere. Nobody would give them a job, so the only job they could do was money lending. And they became very shrewd with money, very good with money. They got rich everywhere they went. And people hated them because moneylenders, that was seen as a, an ignoble uh, profession, something you'd want to stay clear of. Interestingly, to this day, the Jewish people are known for how well they handle money. A lot of people hate them for that. Yet they could be known for so much more. Most of the technology that we enjoy today found its roots in Israel. When you've got three billion Muslims surrounding you, poised to kill you, you get real innovative in your technology and the way you're going to defend your country. You know, it doesn't rain much in Israel, and nobody's going to share water with them. So they put to use 85% of the rainwater that falls on that country. Amazing country. God has blessed Israel in spite of their disobedience. He's prospered them. And in 1948, they returned to their land, and a lot of Amil people had to reconsider their position. Maybe God does have a plan for the Jews after all. You bet he does. And the Abrahamic covenant says that anybody who blesses Israel, God will bless that nation. And anyone who doesn't bless Israel, God will curse that nation. One of the reasons that Muslim countries hate America so much is that we've helped the Jews. They think Israel would be gone and they wouldn't stand a chance if America wasn't helping them. I have news for them. God would... would find another way for Israel to survive if we didn't help them. But I'm glad that we do. Some amillennialists are called preterists. They believe that when the temple fell in AD 70, that was everything Jesus was predicting. That was the major event. R.C. Sproul was a preterist. I don't know if he still is. We like his teaching. We like R.C. Sproul. We don't agree with his replacement theology, though. So I could leave some people saying, well, if he can't get that right, how are we to trust anything he has to say? I do just a word of caution here. The, the, what the Bible has to say about eschatology, again, it's so complicated. So complicated. You've got to extend a lot of grace to people in this area of theology. I can't stand people who get like prideful about their eschatology. Like me and God, we have the whole end times figured out. You know, it's me, it's me and him. So, well, what about the doctrines of grace and love and love your neighbor? And They see those as the minor doctrines and the eschatology is the major doctrine. I think they have things in reverse. Preterism hasn't really been around since 1948. So, even R.C. Sproul said, hmm, when that happened, he had to go do some thinking. Postmillennialism then is the view that it's similar to amillennialism, that it's not an actual thousand years, it's an ind- but it's an indeterminate amount of time. We're in the millennium right now, and things are supposed to be getting better, and when everything's kind of complete, Jesus will come back and reign. And that view became popular around the 17th century to refute the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment 
was the movement that God doesn't need, or man doesn't need God anymore. I almost said God doesn't need man. He doesn't. He's never needed us. He just loves us. So man and science can figure everything out on his own. We don't need God anymore. And the, the post-mill movement got popularized, especially by Jonathan Edwards, of all people, the greatest theologian, really, America's produced. And again, you've got to look at the context of history. Why could post-millennialism grow in popularity? Look what was happening at that time. Do you know he was contemporary with our founding fathers? Jonathan Edwards was right around that same period of time. A new nation was being formed with the Bible as its foundation. The Great Awakening was happening. George Whitfield going all over the place, everybody repenting. The whole missionary movement started then. We were, we were, as Christians, going to take over the globe and bring the gospel everywhere, and everything was getting better, and, and, and God and the Bible was the foundation of it all. And it was just going to get better and better and better until Jesus came back and said, thanks for setting up the kingdom. I'm here to reign in person now. That's kind of the post-mill view. And then we had two world wars, and the post-mill view kind of faded out of existence. The last real big post-mill guy that I can remember is uh, Greg Bonson. If you've ever taken one of Pastor Andy's apologetics classes, he plays a debate between Greg Bonson and an atheist uh, professor, and Bonson just destroys this guy. It's, it's brutal. Um, yeah, I think it was at UC Irvine or UC Riverside where they had the debate. But Greg Bonson was a post-mill guy. Not only was a post-mill guy, he was like called a theonomist. He not only believed we were supposed to Christianize everything so Jesus could return, but that meant kind of bringing the law of Moses as the official law. You know, people would ask him, the stonings and everything? And he's like, I said, the whole law. Wow, so Greg Bonson was a brilliant guy, but he kind of scared me. (laughs) So then the question is, you know, what was Jesus? Was he pre-mill, ah-mill, or post-mill? <laughs> and it's where I left the first service when we ran out of time, so I'm going to leave you hanging. <laughs> but I'm not going to just leave you there. I am going to tell you this. Whatever your view is, Jesus reigns now. He's reigning now. He will come for us. And so... We need to not be afraid of what the future brings. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. It's going to happen just the way he planned it. It's the way it's always worked. And if you're a control freak, you hate these words. And yet, if you are a control freak, I want to tell you, you should love these words. Because this is too big for you and I to figure out. Too big to run a universe. I can't even run my own little universe very well. And so it gives us great, great faith, great hope that God has this whole story figured out. It's not like he doesn't know how it's going to end. If you're in Christ, you're already on the winning team. I love being on the winning team. I'm really competitive. Most, most of you are too. I, I, hate, I hate losing. Second place is his first losers, you know? And yet, because of my competitive nature, I get very prideful. And the second thing that I want to leave you with today is you just can't be prideful about this. Jesus won the victory. We didn't lift a finger. He gets all the glory, all the honor. The fact that we're on the winning team is because he chose us and loves us. And he wants us to go invite other people to be on the winning team. That's the third thing. We don't, we don't have to sit on the sidelines and just watch people be judged and perish. We can go tell them, you can be on the winning team. It's a done deal. And we don't know when he's coming back. I will skip to the end of the Olivet Discourse. He says in, uh, at the end... 
But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. The end times, it's terrifying and wonderful all at the same time. But knowing that in Christ we are on the winning team for all eternity, we can trust this God for history. We can trust him for history and our place in his story. Whatever role he wants us to play, it'll be a good one. It'll be the right one. It'll be tailor-made to our gifts, the people we know, the place we are in history. These prophesied events will happen There will be ever-increasing plagues, famines, natural disasters, wars and rumors of wars. But we remember that the God who did not spare his own son loves us, redeemed us, and is preparing a place for us with him. So in the meantime, we can trust in our king. We can prepare ourselves for when he calls us into action, we're ready. We're like soldiers. We're training. We're preparing. Every day he's going to call you into action. Be ready. And finally, he will, he will return. And we will reign with him forever. When that happens, I don't know. That's the great suspense. Could be today. Could be tomorrow. Next week. Next year. I think we're close. Gospel's almost gone to all the nations. So be diligent, be on the alert, and uh, have great trust in the sovereign of the universe. He knows what he's doing. He's got it all under control. I don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. We've got a God who's good and great and just, merciful and loving, in control. Let's pray, and I'll dismiss this. Father God... You alone are king. You reign in our hearts. There's a great battle going on inside of us. We war against our flesh. Thank you that you've won the victory on the cross. You've defeated sin and death. So we know our marching orders to fight this battle against sin. to herald the good news of the coming of the King and to prepare others to be ready. May we be found diligent and faithful when you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend.